You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. And one thing I think we can agree on, we are well into 2019, right? That's not a partisan statement. It's been a blink of an eye, hasn't it? A blink of an eye with a sty, with pink eye, an eye that's been puffy from crying and has a torn retina and a scratched cornea, but still just a blink of an eye. Don't worry. Everything's okay. But if you're feeling helpless and unsatisfied, let's talk about doing something with your hands instead of something with your brain, because that can be very good for you and fun and productive. If you do something that requires your attention fully, like cooking or baking or repairing something or, or a handcraft, that could be a good way to get out of your head. I saw a photograph a year or two ago on Facebook that showed a sampler that said something like, I made this sampler because I wanted to prick something 2,000 times or I wanted to stab something. But also, besides getting your yayas out, you got to make a funny-looking embroidery. So this leads me to my introduction to today's guest, Diana Waymar, who is the founder of the Tiny Pricks Project, which you may or may not have heard about, but she's gotten a lot of attention this year. She was tired of reading the out-of-control tweets of a certain American leader and couldn't get the lies he was telling out of her head. So Diana started a kind of resistance practice for herself at first, which was to make textiles with his quotes. You'll hear a lot about it in our conversation coming up. But first, my five things. Number one, I had lunch with my old friend Janie, whom I hadn't seen in too many months. And here's what happened that made us both sort of took us aback, let's say. I asked her by text if she wanted to have lunch. She said, yes, what day is good for you? I gave her a day. She suggested a restaurant, and we met. Okay, this struck us both as remarkable. Usually, there's a back and forth. What day? No, that's not good. What about this day? No, that's not good. Can you come to my neighborhood? No, can you come to my neighborhood? Let's just talk on the phone, or let's look at our calendars for next month. That's normal. It doesn't reveal any hostility or reluctance. It's just we're all busy people. But yet, in these two or three texts, we set our plan, we've executed it, and we had a great time. I don't know. It makes me feel dumb that seeing friends takes so much effort especially when we set our own schedules, in my case and in her case. So we had some great food. Nobody canceled. It was just a nice time. So when life happens, it can get in the way. But sometimes you can just have a nice time with a friend. Okay? I'm not trying to be a lecturer, but I come across that way. I think that's what my kids have told me, the exhibits. Oh, I sort of get it now. It sounded like I was scolding. I'm just saying I had a good time with my friend. Number two, this dance video, which is posted at lisabernbach.com, is set to the song Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars and Mark Ronson. The editing is impeccable, and this is 1930s, 40s, 50s movie musicals set to this song. I practically felt the endorphins myself watching it. Go to my website right this second, I say, and look at it. Number three. There is a statement by former federal prosecutors, many of whom served in Republican administrations, right here, also on my webpage, lisabernbach.com. It's published on Medium, and it is open to be signed by other former prosecutors should they want to. At press time, there were over a 1,000 signatures, and it reminds you that democracy is real and needs to be exercised at all times. Number four, Greta Thunberg, Greta Thunberg, Greta Thunberg. The passionate pro-climate protection crusader at 16 years of age puts a mirror in front of all of us, and we feel embarrassed for not taking enough action to protect the world in which we live. As she herself said, she should be in school instead of having to take on this fight for the planet. 
How dare we depend on the young to do our work? Much like the gun control issue now in the hands of the youth, while our doddering legislators greedily take NRA money and point of view as if they had no choice in the matter. They have a choice, and so do we. And number five. I've eaten at a lot of my favorite restaurants this past week. It was filled with birthdays, including my own. Palma, Michigana, The Mark, Bell Harlem, Rotisserie Georgette, Red Farm. When I see them all listed there, I feel like such a pig. Oh, my God. Someone has to say it. Let it at least just be me. My favorite morsels in order of the restaurants, the tagliatelle with lamb, the baba ganoush, the slow-cooked salmon, the fried chicken and waffles, the roast chicken, and the pastrami spring rolls. You heard that right. What a week. All I can say is, before I waddle out of the studio, the austerity kicks in now. Salad only till Thanksgiving. This week's guest, Diana Waymar of the Tiny Pricks Project, had an idea that at first felt small and personal, but she had to grow it, and now she's kind of a spokesperson. It is a growing collection of hand-embroidered, sewn, and needle-pointed textiles with content provided by Donald Trump. The first exhibit at Lingua Franca on Bleecker Street, New York, is coming down this last weekend in September. Another grouping of them is at Speedwell Projects Gallery in Portland, Maine, until November 3rd. We'll be right back with Diana Waymar. Don't go away. I must be the very last person who has procured Diana Waymar and dragged her into a studio because you have probably read about her or seen her interviewed all over the place this summer. Diana is, as you all know, the founder of the Tiny Pricks Project, which is a form of resistance by handcraft. It's something that I'm crazy about. I've become a little obsessed about it, but I know I'm not the only one. And I am just dying to know what your life was like, Diana, before you started this project, which has attracted uh, uh, volunteers and contributors from all around the world, stitching in their best embroidery, needlepoint, sewing, craftsmanship, quotes of Donald Trump's. Well, I think it was, um, now I realize it was a little bit lonely, but I think that time was really important because this is a strange idea. It's a strange response to what's happening right now. It's a strange thing for a lot of people to be doing with their hands. It's a strange way to share a tweet. (laughs) We're swiping, we're posting, we're liking, and to take something that's happening in real time, slow it down backwards, reverse engineer it into stitching, and then repost it in a new way is a strange thing to do. And I think for me, creatively, these strange ideas come when I'm alone. And I live um, in Victoria on the tip of Vancouver Island, and I spend a lot of time with my family and a lot of time alone and a lot of time thinking. And this moment when I made the first tiny prick, and it wasn't even a tiny prick then, that's how organic it was. I didn't set about to create a project that would become this. I had developed a habit of reacting to things that I was seeing and experiencing and reading, because a lot goes back to language, and translating into thread. And I, at that point, was working on a series on the Ebola crisis Mm -hmm. and taking photos from the New York Times and NPR and stitching them. So, for example, the photo of Alan Curdy, which really became a photo that changed the way we feel. But then I noticed that feeling went away pretty quickly. We looked at the Syrian refugee crisis very closely for that moment because of that photo. Mm -hmm. And then we could swipe it away and but if you stitch it and it comes back up stitched into a child's piece of clothing can you think about it differently in a little bit longer and so I had this practice but again it was lonely in a sense because no one else was making pieces with me and this has been sort of remarkable so I would say that in the beginning it was a solitary activity and Mm -hmm. now it's a community that I honestly think could exist without me, which is really a, a wonderful thing to know, is that um, if I couldn't stitch anymore, I couldn't post anymore. I think that there are just people 
that would swell up behind me and, and take this project over. And I love that idea. So in other words, on your own, on your, uh, in a solitary, I mean, I'm just going to rephrase what you said for no really good reason. But so over time, you had this idea that things happening in the world that we, because the pace of news is so fast, because it's hard to absorb what's going on in the world, you would pick a moment that had a visual component, stitch it into a picture, which would keep it alive at least as long as it took to stitch, and then to regard afterwards. And then what would you do with those pieces? A lot of those pieces I would post and share on Instagram, and then I started to exhibit them and define people who would give me a physical space to share them. It's always important, I think, that these the work goes out of your studio. The process of doing it alone is not enough, and that's one of the key elements of the methodology of Tiny Pricks Project, which is you're making something, you're going to wrestle with it, whether it's wrestling with the thread or wrestling with the quote, the words. I have people who have started a quote and put it down because not the stitching is upsetting, but the quote is upsetting. And you have a moment like, why am I stitching these words? <laughs> For permanence. For, right, right. right. But you're a little bit stuck because we think of applying hand our hands to things we love. Yes. it's We make a meal for someone. We make a baby blanket. We make a card. We paint something. and the, And the love is both in the message and the medium. The love in this project is in the medium and the message is off the textile. The message is, I am resilient enough. I am involved enough. I, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention. I will follow the news. I will research for my quote. I mean, that's where there's actually research involved because right. you're making a personal commitment. Um, it's a little bit like Googling someone before you meet them. You have to meet that quote and be sure that it reflects your story and how you connect to it and why you are making that quote. What's the reason? So I know you have you know, quotes that you have a really great reason to make. Some people haven't yet interfaced with this presidency or the language around it or an individual who's been impacted or mm -hmm. part of a movement. Mm -hmm. And they're just looking for a way to, to get into it. And this, this is a way to get into it. Well, it's also, as you say, a community because so many people now follow the Tiny Pricks Project, which is all over Instagram and probably Facebook. Mm -hmm. And and I think when people submit one, they it, it's like being admitted to a club in a way. We're all part of it. We're doing something. It's like making a phone call to your congressman. It's a form of activism. Would you have said that your handcraft, your stitching was your job before this started? I mean, you have four <laughs> children. Yeah. That's a lot of children. And you have yeah. a husband and you have parents and you go back and forth. I mean, tell us about your life before even the stitching. Before the stitching, I was always thinking of ways to tell stories. So in college, I was a creative writing English major. I was writing short stories about my childhood. I went directly into a year of working at Simon Schuster after I graduated because I was a beneficiary of a scholarship trainee program. And at that point, Simon Schuster paid for part of my senior year of college and gave me a one-year job. Get out. I know. It was 1991, and they were looking for college students, and it was a they dream job. They weren't looking for me. <laughs> I, I was, it was very important for me to have a job after I graduated from college. I, was, um, I had loans. I had a, four jobs while I was in college. I had scholarships. Um, Thank you, Molson Beer, and other scholarship. <laughs> I grew up in Canada, so they they were very generous. Um, it was really important to have a job, and and I arrived in my Mary Tyler Moore moment in 1991, working at Simon Schuster, and they had this amazing program where you spent three months in four different departments: publicity, subsidiary rights, editorial, trade. And I was then surrounded by the making of stories and the making of books and the, all, everything else that I hadn't been inspiring. doing in college. It yeah. is, and it's humbling, and, humbling. and it's reality. And, and then I um, met my husband. We had a child. Um, a very exciting time. And I moved back to New York and started working in film. And again, the storytelling comes back again. 
And there was a point in my film career when I had to make a choice about how much time I was going to spend with my family and how much further I was going to work. And I stepped back and, and spent time with my family and raised, and we had two just, more children. Just started making kids. <laughs> <laughs> I did bump into one of my former writing teachers, and she asked me what I, what, basically what had become of me, what was I doing? And I said, well, I have four children. She said, you've been very productive. <laughs> and I thought, not like that. <laughs> Reproductive, but yes, yeah, um, reproductive. But I learned a lot of things. I it's a luxury to spend time with your children. It's a luxury to have children. So um, that was an important time for me. And the storytelling. So what I was doing before I really started stitching was I was spending time with my children and and I was raising them and with my husband and. I became very interested in art therapy. I read about an artist who was working um, in Jordan with Doctors Without Borders, and I thought, I want to be an artist, but I want it to be important, and I want it to be meaningful. I want to help people. I don't want to make something that's going to end up creating a backlog of art in my basement or my studio. Right. It's really important for me to have a job, um, and it's still very important for me to have a job, and this is a job, and I take it seriously. And so I got interested in art therapy, and I applied to a program at NYU, and they didn't accept me. And I was, I was in my early forties, and I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. <laughs> so, so I ended up, you know, having a conversation, realizing that I didn't have the skills. I actually had taken art courses, but I wasn't really an artist, and there were things that I had to learn. I went back to art school, and I took a course called Art in the Language of Craft. And that course gave me permission to use the storytelling, to use the handmade that I had grown up with in my childhood, and to start to make things without thinking about what anybody thought. And there was so much freedom in that process, in that course. And I started stitching things. And I had to, you know, I took my son to squash. So I put my stitching in a Ziploc bag and sit by the squash courts. And so out of necessity, I started, as women and artists have, making things whenever I could make them. And then I couldn't stop. And I fell down this rabbit hole of thread and stitching and textile and memory textiles. That's a very important piece of this project, which is that people are making them on a textile that has had some importance. And you're bringing back these memories of when I saw that kind of handkerchief, when my grandmother did this, when my aunt did that, when my family had this doily under her lap. <laughs> you know, there's these different artifacts. Yes. And it's so all these things sort of connected, and this project has been. Um, it's brought all of these things to the forefront that I care about the future. We have children. You have a grandchild. I, this is all about the future. This is a political moment, and it's a personal statement. I love this. I love one of the reasons I, I, I love your work is that I, I love how something that has been thought of as dainty and uh, maybe a craft not an art mm -hmm. and you 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 hit on that just just now and something that is considered ladylike has now grown muscle and and grit and is a tool of politics i also love ha the the just the dissonance of it and what's so weird is about two or three years ago, I found a photograph online that showed a, an embroidery uh, uh, ring hoop, an embroidery hoop embroidered with the words, I'm so angry, I just want to prick something a hundred times or something. And I posted it, got, uh, you know, it, it, it was satisfying. But you've taken that so much further, kind of without the anger. And that is what you said earlier, too, Diana, which is that when you make something, you start to love it. And regardless of the words, even though they may be awful and embarrassing, it's still made with love, made with care. The examples that I've seen on display at the Lingua Franca store on Bleecker Street, and I urge everybody to go see it, and I think I've talked about it before, the exhibit itself looks like the most delicious lacy confection of joy from afar. It's only when you get up close that you see 
when you read everything, you think, oh, my God, who could say these things? Mm-hmm. One staple genius is the answer. <laughs> um, but but it looks like yummy, yummy, yummy. Don't you, don't you find in the way you have them in the window, people are so enchanted. It looks mm-hmm. like a magic little cottage, and they walk in and react. Yeah, I think of it as... Um I always try to imagine what a sculptural Twitter feed would look like. Like, if you had to make it an object, what would it look like? And I've been thinking about the show in Portland, Maine, and will I start to curate it by theme? Will I put all these She's Not My Type quotes together? And then would they be next to send her back? Or would they be next to uh, Iv- Ivanka Weren't My Daughter, which is like another category? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> there are a lot of categories. How do I start to curate the words? Do I curate by textile? What if I spelled out, you know, vote in the middle of uh, this whole wall with the brightly colored textiles. How do these individual pieces fit together, and how does the textile speak louder than the words at first? Because there are layers, and we have, at Lingua Franca has a brilliant window, and the window of their store has a square cut out in the middle of it, and in that window, people are looking in, and inside the store, you're looking out. And when you look out... You can read them reading the quotes. Yes. And so an unsuspecting person walks by. You see them looking at their phone. They glance over. Then they they look again. They back up. They look. If they're with friends, they point. They laugh. If they're with children, they are reading them to their children. (laughs) This can be a little bit intense. Um, If, you know, tourists, they're they're looking, they're pointing, they're taking pictures. I saw a couple today, and they said, we live in the neighborhood, and we come by every day. And we stop here at this window, and we look in. And I said, well, I'm actually updating it. And they said, we noticed. (laughs) (laughs) We noticed that there's now a quote about, you know, different things that there hadn't been quotes about that that sent her back is up on the wall because that happened after. Right. The exhibit went up. Another thing that's happening is people come in and say, well, where's this quote? You know, <laughs> it oh, is wow. this here? And I had to bring in the, sadly, she's no longer a 10 Raggedy Ann doll because people came in asking for the Oh, doll. about Heidi Klum. Yes. No yeah. longer a 10. Yeah. So a participant Poor took thing. a doll in the 1960s that her mother had made, and she's missing an eye, so it looks like she's winking, but there's a thread hanging down and a loose thread. And into the dress is stitched, sadly, she's no longer a 10. And there's that like so many pieces, brings it all together. Yes. Our memory, our nostalgia, our longing for something that was traditional. And we do have longings for tradition, even if we are not traditional people. I know that. And we know their memories connected to it and a doll. And then, you know, a comment about a supermodel. Um <laughs> It really brings it all, yeah, as one, it all kind of brings it all right back together. And then the piece about it all that always moves me, even when I'm tired, is that this piece is donated. And you've donated a piece, and someone you don't know has donated a piece. And they've donated it as an act of optimism. Mm hmm. It's an act yes. of hope. Yes. And that's, I don't feel the same hope when I retweet something. But I feel the same hope when I follow people who are really tracking this presidency with humor and wit. And and I think that humor and wit come through in textile. Yes. And you see the choices of textile sometimes, like the Raggedy Ann doll, like the participant who's constructed ties from scratch. Yes. And, and it brings so many different things together. And you can look at it and appreciate the stitching. You can think about the quote. You can look at that textile and wonder where did that come from? Who was that person who made it? There's so many wonderful ways to enter it. And this is a time when we, we're, we're, we're starting to calcify in our reaction to things. I was waiting in a green room yesterday for an interview, and I hadn't seen the Sharpie, adjusted Sharpie map with the pen Trump talk. About Alabama and yeah. the National Weather Service, and I thought, which is against the law, apparently, to alter such a document. But what a metaphor. Yes. <laughs> for what's happening. For everything. And he's asked who did it. And he, I don't know who, who Sharpie is. I'm thinking, can we do like a DNA testing on the Sharpie? Can we, yeah. Where'd the Sharpie come from? <laughs> yeah. And then I then I immediately think, Lisa, how am I going to make that piece? Right. So I move from feeling stuck and outraged to how am I going to make this piece? And yeah. even if you make, and I know you're working on your second, even if you um, 
stop with your second, which I hope you won't, but even if you do, you still might look at the news a little bit differently. How do I translate that into textile and thread? And you may look at something and think, how do I translate it into writing or a podcast? But the minute you're loosened up to uh-huh. think, how can I make something out of what's just happened that's beyond absurd, you have some freedom. Well, you're right. You you think I can do something as opposed to feeling helpless, which a lot of us feel a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. As it, opposed to something is being done to me. Mm-hmm. I'm asked about the title because it's a little bit cheeky, and I know it is a little cheeky. But the first prick I felt was not that image and that image that you described about I could, I'm so mad I could, you know, prick right. or stab something 3,000 right. times. Um, I, a lot of people sent that to me, and I think of stitching as an act of repair and mending. And so I think about this really as um, trying to to re-stitch this fabric in a different way. And you can never take two separate pieces of fabric and put them together seamlessly. Right. And we will never go back right. to a seamless time when um, we don't we don't have a president, you know, tweet, presidential letters are gone. I think we have presidential tweets. We, A lot of things have changed. And the tradition of stitching really is a mending act. And I think we're trying to mend, too, as we try to process what's happening. I am positive that other uh, volunteers feel, as I do, that, okay, I... I learned how to do this for this project, but now I have a little bit of a skill that I can apply to other things. So, for example, I just got a needlepoint kit to make a, a surprise for somebody, and I, would, I, I am convinced I wouldn't have thought of it had I not entered the handcraft moment. Plus, as I said in in one of some weeks, uh, five things, you can stitch and listen to a book or a podcast while you are stitching with your headphones on or just the radio. I mean, it really is a very uh, portable joy. The, the, it's very important that it's portable. Um, that I mean, that was how I got into it. So first I was parenting and then I was <laughs> my, my stitching kits. Right. And now it's sort of reversed. <laughs> I'm stitching and I, my parenting might be more in a Ziploc bag. I hope, I hope my, kids, <laughs> my kids forgive me. Um, oh. I love them. Uh, they know that. They know uh, that. <laughs> they know that. But it is important, um, yeah, to really recognize that if you haven't done it before, it helps you think differently. We know this is good for the brain. Um, we know that trying new things is really important at every age. Um, I love it when someone has, has never done it before and, and starts to do it. And and you really have to learn by hand. You're really learning from your mistakes. Right. And, and people will come to me and say, I, I didn't know that you, know, you could separate the thread into six strands, so I stitched all of it with all six strands. <laughs> and, and just the mechanics of making something, and I'm not surprised that you found something you you might continue to do in other ways because you're curious and and still you're always making something for people. I think if you're a caring person, we are trying to care for each other, and this is another way to care for each other, and that, that never gets old. And creativity is creativity, no matter what. Um, I'm curious about the trajectory of the exhibit. I know that it was supposed to be in New York for a short time, but you had to extend it three or four or five times because it's been a huge success on Bleecker Street. And it's going to Maine, but not leaving Bleecker Street. Is that right? That's right. So it, it actually, so just telling the story about how it came to New York, because it's meant to be in New York, because it's hometown, after all. Um, Rochelle uh, of Lingua Franca and I found each other on Instagram. I think she found me, but I feel like I found her. Very much um, we connected because of her recognition of the importance of the handmade and of stitching through a challenging time personally, but also how that handmade draws our attention to political issues. And And I should say that the Lingua Franca line, which Mm -hmm. is adorable and many of you have seen, are the cashmere sweaters with hand-embroidered slogans on them, either ones that you make up or she has Rebel Rebel and I Miss Barack and 
people, all rise. People come into the store and they say, um, do you have I Miss Barack? And I only hear I Miss Barack. And I think, I miss Barack. And, and, and is Barack becoming like these textiles where you look on these vintage textiles and we had vintage Barack? And uh, yes, Rochelle really captured this yearning for something comforting and warm, something handmade, something personalized, a message. I was actually thinking of taking a class there. She has, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to selling sweaters that say, and, and a lot of them aren't political. A lot of them say original gangster or uh, too cool for school or whatever they say. But she has classes, I think, once a month or every few months. And you get a sweater. You choose your color sweater and mm-hmm. somebody teaches you how to it's embroider. Re- and that is, they do. And, and I think they're very popular. Um, and you get to sit with a group of people. You pick your thread. Someone guides you through it. And um, when I w- first visited, I've been in their store a lot, but also their office where the workshops are held, there are these cases of thread. And there's a beautiful table and you, you can sit and work and you can have this help guiding you through it. But what is also happening is you're sitting in a room of people and you're talking and your hands are busy and you start to talk. And I think that there's this warm, warm connection. And that also happens with Tiny Pricks. So Rochelle and I recognized in each other, yes, we both um, started this alone and we both found communities and we both know that this works. And they were um, unbelievably generous and brave to take on a project that's quite political. I've had nonprofit arts organizations that just can't quite put these pieces in their windows and exhibit this work. And she said, you know, we have a store, we have a space, we're going to retrofit the walls with panels of fabric. And it's like going inside a Fabergé egg or or, or, or an escape room, <laughs> depending, <laughs> depending on your perspective on life. And put it in the window and put it in um, a way that people is accessible to everyone. So you can walk in and get a free uh, textile to participate. If you don't have one, a lot of people are traveling and they're so happy and they say, is this free? And you say, it is free. <laughs> no, you may take I got, it. You weren't there the first time I walked in, but I took a hanky and I bought a little hoop mm-hmm. and I got thread and... And and they're helping you get started. Mm-hmm. That's a, that is a wonderful act. And there, there are things about it that that they have really supported. It's an open call for action. This project will continue until he's out of office. And I said that before the Mueller report because, like you, I was like, aha, yeah, <laughs> here yeah. we go. It'll be over soon. <laughs> It'll be over soon, yes. Um, and it so until he's out of office, and the goal for this year is 2,020 pieces by 2020. And I think before I came up to see you, I was picking up a huge ba- uh, bag full of pieces that have been shipped to Massachusetts, and I'm sure we're going to reach the goal. And we will continue. I mean, that's so that tw- by 2020, there's enough of a collection that we can have four or five exhibits like we have right now. And because I'm working with this organically, I, of course, planned another show after the show in New York, in Portland, Maine, which I'm really excited about at, at Speedwell Projects. And because it's been in San Francisco, and that's playing to the hometown crowd, right? North Beach, um, right? And it's in New York, and that's also. And I don't. Portland, Maine, will be new to me. I lived in Maine for a year. I loved it, and and it's a new community. I don't know it that well, but you I know people talk about Portland, and you have to make sure that are. Are you talking about Oregon or Maine? Maine. But yeah. Maine is is the sleeper Oregon because there's no Portlandia show about. <laughs> Uh, but Portland, Maine is fantastic. It's a fantastic city. It has great food. And I think which it's, is, you know, part of what makes a city great. Yes. And I think it has um there are a lot of work being done with immigrants and refugees in Portland. I've met people who want to bring groups in to make pieces. I think it's really good to take the project places that I don't know mm-hmm. as well. And mm-hmm. and I'm always looking for feedback. It's very interactive. And so anyway, it, it we have the show set. It opens on September 14th. And I was on my way back here to take down the entire exhibit at Lingua Franca. And I had this moment. I thought, it's too big to fit <laughs> just at Speedwell. Pro- it's 
it's too big. And they're going to have a wall that you can send in your piece and it goes up on the wall immediately. Oh, wow. So cool. it's, it's building the only wall that Trump's built. Uh, it's building <laughs> the wall. And, yes. and you get that satisfaction of seeing your piece go up on display, not just on Instagram where it will go, um, but also physically seeing it become part of the exhibit and joining it. It's like a like a march. You know, everybody right. is showing up. I realized it's I didn't want to disappoint a single person whose work wouldn't be up in Maine. And I thought, wait a minute, there can be two exhibits. And thankfully, I'm working with two organizations that are flexible because these are difficult times uh, to get art up, to have space. A lot of places have a long lead time. Mm -hmm. They don't have this flexibility to react to what's happening in real time. And so really, the participants that joined this project this summer made this possible for there to be two exhibits at once. And so it'll stay up at Lingua Franca until the end of September. And I've been in this store the last few days and people are calling and they're like, is it closing? Is it closing? People have come. Someone came from Portland, Oregon just to see the show. And I say, it's, it's not. It's going to be here longer and it will be in Maine. And really the goal for 2020 is to have this project exhibited in swing states, to have it be somewhere where 400 pieces go and people add their pieces and they all join together. And then, of course, I have a fantasy of showing it all at the the Democratic National Convention. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> These oh, are fantasies. Yes. A, you know. girl dream, a girl can dream, Diana. A girl can dream. Um, okay, Florida, Pennsylvania, <laughs> yeah. Ohio. We're, we're looking at embroiderers there. Uh, question for you. Are men embroidering? They are. In this project? Not in the same numbers at all. Right. Um, often they have a relationship with someone who's brought them to um, see the project. Uh, the discussions are very similar, but I just, there aren't as many men who have participated. Um, mm -hmm. There was a man who came in from Seattle and he said, my wife, he was on a work trip with his, his team. They all had their company's t-shirts on and he came in and I was like, well, here's a group of men coming mm. to the show and they all yeah. wearing the same t-shirt. He said, my wife told me that I had to come and see it. Uh, they live in Seattle and she couldn't come. And, and I had an amazing conversation with them. So the reaction to the project is the same. But the the participant, the entry point into actually making a piece has not has not been the same. And i'm I'm not sure how to change that. I know, of course, it's a gendered medium. It's this practice, the way women meet. Um, but I there is a man who's contacted me, and he's formed a group um, to get together to make pieces because couldn't you can imagine through all the debates, what would, you know, quell your anxiety more than stitching as you're watching Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, right? You know, sling it out on, on stage. So um, better I than drinking. Better than drinking. <laughs> Definitely oh. healthier, I think. Um, so, I wish, I hope that more men will join. Uh, that would be wonderful. It's it's it doesn't open to matter, everyone, but yeah. Yeah. And how far has the what is the furthest a textile has traveled to you? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, New Zealand, um, the lot from the UK. I, there was a woman I was communicating with in South Africa, and I'm hoping her piece is in the mail. Uh, a lot from Canada, because I yeah. live in Canada, but also because the proximity. Right. Um, and well, now, I think New Zealand is New Zealand that's is pretty cool. And they like the project because, you know, it's kind of cheeky. Yes, it's very <laughs> cheeky. The different different ways you can approach it, the tiny pricks is whether it's, you know, pricking your conscience, it's the method of stitching and then there's the third. Yeah. Yeah. The vulgar one. The vulgar one. Right. Which which makes it that much more fun. If you can remember it, I think it's, I've been told that's a good thing. It's, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a hard title to forget, I think. Yes, exactly. Diana, what I love about this project is that it brought us together. And I consider you a new friend. And I am really just moved by your effort, by your generosity, and by all the feelings you've evoked with the Tiny Pricks Project. I really, I have goosebumps. I really, it means a lot. And and then the fact that you're so nice and scholarly just makes it all <laughs> the petite. more... And petite. And <laughs> petite. Petite and scholarly. And you have brought us your list of five. I, it and I would love my... you to share it with us. Yeah. So my first thing was my childhood in the wilderness, um, because I do know how to be alone, and I know how to play with my imagination. Um, 
I, I was referring to a high school friend that I was going to see, and I said to my kids, I'm going to see uh, my best friend. And they said, oh, the chicken, because I grew up with chickens. <laughs> and one of my best friends was a chicken, and then that chicken was then food, and that was confusing and traumatic. But anyway, um, that childhood in the wilderness for those seven to eight years in northern British Columbia were magical because um, I didn't know what I was missing. And so if you're not, if you don't know that you're missing something, you have a, a certain amount of freedom and joy of imagination that is really magical. Did your parents homeschool you while they you did. were while was Vigo Mortensen nearby? <laughs> I didn't know he existed so I didn't know what I was missing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till I when I left the wilderness I really knew I was missing the Brady Bunch. I was missing Gilligan's Island. I had to, you know, schedule my play dates depending on what TVs people had because right. I, I didn't my parents wouldn't have a TV. Right. Um but uh, <laughs> I have seen that movie and um you know, we're all very sensitive about our own stories and I always think well that didn't, they didn't quite get it right. Yeah. But but there yeah. are always elements of it and and there are a lot of these stories, and they're, they're really sort of specific and special stories. Um, well, so, I mean, that's you were born on the East Coast. I was born in Vermont. And your parents in the 70s decided to move to Canada, but not just they didn't move to Toronto, let's say. <laughs> they, they really wanted to get back to Homestead, They right? did. And they left in 1970, and they, um, I guess, sold off some wedding presents and packed up a truck with me and an axe and a bag of rice and, and different things, uh, sort of like a, a game of Clue, like <laughs> <laughs> heading off with the objects. And um, they did this for seven years, which is really kind of amazing. They were young. They were in their um, early to... 24, 25, and they did this together in an early marriage um, and not an easy life, but I think that they would say that that was a really magical time. Um, and it was a very special time for me as well, and I, it took me years to sort of really understand how to put a very unusual childhood into some perspective um, but I have. Uh, my number two is my children because they challenge question and push me to be a better listener and have more empathy. I think a lot of people feel this way uh, about their children, but I think one of the things that I especially appreciate is how open and honest they are. And uh, I remember talking to a teacher asking, so what do you do now that they're in their late teens? How do you relate to them? And they said, well, you, you know, not only are you giving them the steering wheel, but they're driving the car, and now you get to be the passenger, and you get to talk, and they get to talk, and it's just... Uh, they are so unbelievably kind and helpful and critical, <laughs> which is very important. You need your own, uh, you need people to challenge you who love you, yeah. especially when a project is growing this quickly. And they will say, how about this? I, you know, they know who I am and they know what I do and they know what's true to me and when I veer away from that. And that's keeping my true north, not mm -hmm. my true north in the wilderness sense, but keeping my true north is important. And they... It's a moral compass. Yeah. yeah. They really keep me... They, they also really... I, I think I can face any critic of this project because they have really uh, seen huge holes in my poorly formed parenting arguments. <laughs> <laughs> I, Parenthood in a bag. I, I was putting these notes in the fridge for a while and I called them parental public service announcements to my daughter, and they would be things like, if you take the dog leash, put it back in the same place so I can find it. Uh -huh. Things like that. And my daughter said, no, no, those are just passive-aggressive notes. <laughs> oh, how funny. <laughs> Which is true. Um, but anyway, I, I was doing something creative as well. Um, I have number three are th uh, friends who make things for me, and um, I now put you in this category. Aww, I now have... Thank um, you. You know, when someone makes something and they give it to you, it always moves me to another place. I had a winter in Maine, and a friend in Princeton knit a blanket for me for Valentine's Day, a girlfriend. Aww. And she wrapped it up and with a little bit of chocolate. And she said, I just think you might be colder in Maine than you were in Victoria. And I, it still blows me away. To, I'm still reopening that gift every Valentine's Day because Leslie made that and did that. And this is, happens to me daily. Um, you know, I have friends who open up their homes to me when I travel, and I travel a lot. And they're not just sharing their homes and giving me a key. They're giving me a life and a family and someone to come home to and someone to have coffee with in the morning that is so much for me nicer than a hotel because I miss my home, I miss my children, I miss my dog. And they're their lives, and they just open their doors up and say, stay with me. So that's... Um, 
That's number three. Instagram, number four. Instagram, because it without it, Tiny Pricks Project would not exist. And I must say, you are hard at it. I mean, you're posting two or three times a day and usually multiples of textiles. It's amazing. I was posting more, and my daughters would see me with my phone, and they would say, you're not posting, are you? Give me your phone. They, I think <laughs> they literally took my phone away from me, and they had to explain that you don't, don't overpost. And so they always remind me that... My daughter told me I was using Instagram all wrong. (laughs) And they're right. Of course. And we ruin Facebook. I know. I know. Well, they don't even go on Facebook. It's so uncool. Um, Right. But uh, I don't know if you know this story, but the night of the opening, an amazing night, one of the best moments of my nights of my life, June 12th, um, Lingua Franca had just gone all out before this opening. The Resistance Revival Chorus sang. It was one of those moments. And my daughter came to me at one point and said, uh, there's something wrong with your phone. I can't get on your Instagram account. And I was in the middle of saying hello to so many people. And we just put it aside. And then after it all ended, I got on my phone and my Instagram account had been deleted. So so Tiny Pricks Project what? was not on Instagram for about 12 hours. What? Um, yes. And I just hit 10,000 followers. It was, and I had been using it a lot to hashtag the pieces. We don't know what happened. And we went through the process of getting it back up, which we did. But I lay in bed that night, 2.30 in the morning, and I thought, okay, everyone, most of the people I know and love are okay. The physical collection still exists. My documentation of it for the last year is gone. And I realized how vulnerable I was to a to Instagram mm-hmm. and to whomever might be able to get onto my account. It is not a material object. Right. It, right. it was like a home invasion. It was yeah. an Instagram home invasion. And we think that the stories and, and what we're sharing on Facebook it, it's we use it as our address book. We use it, you know, in, Facebook is constantly reminding us what happened last year, where we were right. six years ago. Right. All that can be deleted if you don't back it up, if you don't do the things you need to do. So I, it was ironic to me as an artist who takes something from social media, creates a material record on the night of the opening. If That's... I was then more big picture and, and thought of it more creatively instead of sheer panic, um, and I go into a kind of a very quiet panic. Uh-huh. Um, luckily, I was with one of my best friends, and she was more... The chicken? <laughs> yeah, no. uh, oh, see? I should never have told that story. I don't. People are going to send me chicken pictures now. <laughs> that wouldn't be the worst thing. No, yeah, yeah it wouldn't be the worst thing. Um, chickens and roosters fe- feature prominently in this yes, project. Yes, they do. There's a, there are a lot of, yeah. Yeah, a lot of roosters. A lot of orange-haired roosters <laughs> suddenly out there being yes. stitched. Um, but it was a really important moment. It was, it was probably the hardest thing to have happen that yes. night. Yes. Um, to the project. Uh, Lingua Franca was amazing and patient, and, and as were the people who were writing about it, and we went through the process. I did say to my husband, call Instagram, and he said, you don't call Instagram. Right, right. That's the problem. <laughs> In my panic, I thought I can get somebody on the phone. I'll explain how important this is tonight, the biggest night of my life. Um, but all the kidding aside, um, people like to brag to me that they're not on Facebook anymore, they're not on Instagram, and I say, that's great. I'm sure that probably works better for you. But for me, I I don't take it for granted that I can pick up my phone after this interview and and everyone will be there and the pictures will be there and the stories will be there and the comments will be there. It's an incredible thing. And and I think I feel very lucky that I could reach, that I have it to reach people. How else would I do this project? How else could it grow this way? Honestly, it couldn't have existed 15 years ago no. for that reason. No, and for artists, and it is such a gift to be able to share your work in this yes. way. Yes, um, yes, because otherwise you're by yourself hanging it up on your yeah. on your wall yeah. at home. No, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, number five, I put watching animals in our yard in Victoria, B.C., and I wrote this when I was in Victoria, and I was looking out my studio window at the deer um, that every time I look at them sort of move and do something different and it was, you know, it's an incredible um, luxury to watch animals in this isn't even a wild habitat. But I learned growing up in the wilderness when you, you know, your greatest obstacle to getting to the outhouse was whether or not there would be a bear in your way. So I'm very sensitive to animals. And uh-huh. and to see animals in um, around your home and in your landscape is, a, is, for me, an incredible reminder of how far we've gotten from... Um, having protected spaces for animals. So these, the, there are about four or five deer that live in our front yard, and um, 
I see them trying to trying to live there, and they have a spot they come back and sleep at. And when I wake up in the morning, I look out and I count how many are there. And it's just a wonderful moment to sort of reconnect and to see um, the natural world, because so often I'm looking at a screen or a phone or looking down. Right. <clears throat> that is true. Yeah. If you're stitching, you're looking down. Yeah. But... Uh, but the natural world, and also you grew up in the natural world. I did. It's Without, a homecoming for yes, me. Yes, yes. Oh, I, I, I think it. I need that. I, I think it's it's even strange for me to put our dog on a leash. I mean, I grew up with sled dogs, so they have they didn't have leashes. They they worked. Um, uh, they were transportation, and so there was a real different relationship of respect and care. The way you might care for your car, we were caring for sled dogs, but uh, a lot of respect and, and dependency. We depended on them to get, you know, to the town in yes. the middle of the winter if they couldn't pull the dog sled, if they weren't fed and they weren't taken care of, but also respecting their, you know, innate nature. So I'm extremely grateful to be around animals and, and to be able to watch them do what they do. When you write your memoir, <laughs> please send me the galley so I can comment on it because think about it. This is a woman who grew up with sled dogs, not a car and is now dependent on social media to get her message out. It is, but the message is handmade. It's, you break, you break all these stereotypes in such a handy way, <laughs> and it is really a treat to have you here. Thank you so much, well, Diana. thank you for having me, and, and I'm, I'm humbled and unbelievably grateful to everyone who's followed this project and supported it in the way that you have today, because it's really about every, it's about everyone else. Well, onward. Onward to 2020. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks, Lisa. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Diana Waymar, creator and curator of Tiny Pricks, the Tiny Pricks Project. You can follow her on Twitter at Tiny Pricks or on her website at tinypricksproject.com. Easier to write than to say. And please, by all means, go to the Tiny Pricks Project on Instagram where she has 38,000 followers. You can subscribe to this podcast, and please do. That's the right thing to do. But I don't care where you do it. It could be Apple Podcasts. It could be Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, or iHeartRadio, or if there's another place you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you will find links and many, many cool pictures of handcrafts and textiles and photos and all the things we spoke about today. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>